The Flight Deck is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you to the donors who sustain the Museum of Flight. To support this podcast and the museum's other educational initiatives, visit museumofflight.org slash podcast. Hello and welcome to The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I'm your host, Sean Mobley. Greg Sumner is typical of so many av geeks I've met over the past few years working here at the museum. He grew up fascinated by airplanes, he's got models of some of his favorite around the house. He managed to parlay that love of aviation into a career as a pilot, flying some of the most iconic aircraft out there for United Airlines. He also served as the co-chair of the National Gay Pilots Association, a worldwide organization dedicated to creating community for LGBTQ people across all aviation jobs and fostering a more inclusive industry. In this season of The Flight Deck, we're sharing LGBTQ stories. Greg joined me to share some of his own stories as a pilot, to talk about one of the heroes from 9-11 that was a member of the National Gay Pilots Association, and explain why diversity and inclusion aren't just buzzwords to him, but a matter of life and death. A content note, about 29 minutes into this episode, Greg shares a derogatory term for a gay man that was used to describe him by another pilot. As always, we're leaving the interview uncensored, but I did want to give a heads up. With that, please welcome Greg to the podcast. What is your earliest aviation memory, Greg? My grandparents moved to Tucson right before I was born, growing up in Chicago, and my parents would uh, take us to O'Hare Field to catch a flight on American Airlines uh, and also on TWA. 727 stretch service nonstop from Chicago O'Hare to Tucson International, and that hooked me pretty quickly. Uh, so flying, flying, uh, not the friendly skies, but uh, flying American in CWA. So I always tell the American flight attendants that it's their fault that I'm an airline pilot today. <laughs> Did you get to go do the whole tour of the cockpit, the whole nine yards back then? Did that and even had a gate agent at DFW one time when I was traveling by myself. I was in high school. I told her I was going to be an airline pilot, and she walked me down on the luxury liner DC-10 service from DFW to O'Hare and said, uh, take a left, go have a seat up in first class. So my first first class experience was in row one of the DC-10 luxury liner uh, on American. So yes, I, I, I've, I've had some amazing experiences with the airlines. You know, it, it's tougher to do that these days in the post 9-11 world, but it's it's so interesting how still today, like so many people who get bit by the, the aviation bug have a very similar story. It just all comes back to somebody introducing them to this whole thing. That's why, in fact, on our last, my last trip to, uh, to London on the 787, we had a family come up to say hello. And we love having kids come up and put them in the seats, wear, wear our pilot hats, take photos with the families, because I remember how important that was uh, for me to, to think, hey, I, I can actually do this. 
So what was your journey then in towards becoming a pilot and what got you here? What have you flown? Well, uh, I was really fortunate when I was in eighth grade. One of my neighbors who I, I was had on my paper route, I was a, a, a newspaper a delivery boy. So one of my neighbors, her best friend happened to be Bill Norwood, uh, the one of the founding members of OBAP and the first African-American pilot United hired. And so she coordinated uh, my mom and and dad to meet Bill and his wife uh, on a Saturday afternoon in in Chicagoland. And he spent the afternoon kind of mentoring me on what I needed to do. Um, So that started that journey. And growing up near O'Hare, I just did whatever I could to be around the airplanes. And if that meant going and spending the afternoon uh, listening to the air traffic control frequencies on a radio and, and learning process, um, doing that, then uh, getting a job working construction at O'Hare. I I was actually a surveyor um, for for the airport all through college. So there there are taxiways that didn't exist uh, until I I was a surveyor uh, for that. So that's what helped put me through school. And then I got uh, a merit-based scholarship to go to Western Michigan University. So that's how I Got to major in aviation, also double majored in Spanish, did a foreign study semester in Spain. While I was in Spain, kind of kind of what I, I talked about with the American experience, I talked with the, the pilots who I would run into when I would be on trips. Of course, this would all be in Spanish. And one time doing that, I get on this brand new MD-88 flying from Granada, Spain to Barcelona. And just before we we start taxiing out, the flight attendant comes back and says, hey, uh, the captain would like to see you. And this was all in Spanish. OK. And I go I go up to the front and the captain says, hey, Gregorio is my name in Spanish. And he says, do you, do you want to sit up here for the flight? This was in 1994. And of course, I'm like, uh, yeah, that would be amazing. And so I got to fly on a brand new MD-88 um, on Aviaco uh, Airlines uh, in the in the jump seat in the the cockpit jump seat from Granada to Barcelona and again that that kind of experience just hooks you especially when you're in aviation and you're getting to observe all of the things you're learning in aviation safety class and CRM class in your piloting class um, so once I got out of uh, Western Michigan as a CFI I moved out to Arizona where I knew the weather was good and became a flight instructor. I worked uh, as a baggage handler for United Airlines. Uh, I was a gate agent while I was flight instructing. And uh, so I flew as much as I possibly could. And once I had enough hours to be competitive, I got hired at Continental Express, uh, went back up to the North Tundra of Cleveland and started as a Beach 1900 pilot and commuting from O'Hare Living, living back in, in my childhood home and um, upgraded there and then got hired at uh, the ripe young age of 26 at United Airlines and started as a Boeing 727 flight engineer. I actually got to fly the 727 as a co-pilot before uh, they grounded them um, with 9-11. And uh, I've flown the 737. Um, I 
I've been furloughed twice, so I've had a weird, weird airline career. Uh, I've from those furloughs, I got to fly uh, Learjets. Um, I've flown. Let's see, I'm trying to think what King Airs, uh, C90s, and so I've gotten to touch a lot of the industry. And during the second furlough, uh, after flying the Airbus at United, I went to work for L3, which is now L3 Harris. Uh, in their next-gen department. And we, along with Honeywell and Rockwell, were the companies, uh, and, and Garmin, um, at the time, we were kind of leading the charge for next-gen, for ADSBN. And so they brought me on, company brought me on here in Phoenix to uh, help uh, do business development and create business cases for why airlines and operators needed to equip early and how we could use ADSBN uh, to help prevent runway incursions, for example. Uh, so I did that for five years. Can you? I'm going to interrupt you. Do you mind explaining what ADSBN is for listeners who might not know? Sure. So uh, ADSBN, Automatic Dependent Surveillance Broadcast, in in meaning what we're taking in of all the information that's being sent out by each individual aircraft or drone. We can take that data and process that information. For example, um, uh, the wake turbulence, uh, uh, when a plane is taking off and it's heavy, um, it's producing quite a bit of wingtip vortices. We could, there, there are, are algorithms that can assess the, the load that that plane in front of you is, is um, the wing loading that that plane in front of you is experiencing and help predict where based on the, the local wind conditions, where those wingtip vortices might be so you can actually fly around them. Um, so that that's just one example of what of what you can do with ADSBN. Cool. So, but you did get back in the skies up to now. Uh, it's amazing. I, I really, you know, the industry went through such tumult, tumult after 9-11 and the, the financial crisis that um, it was bad. I mean, it was really bad. We call it the lost decade, but it was really more like 15 years. So we have a whole generation of, of people who didn't even consider a airline or flying as a career uh, because it just wasn't something that was incentivized to, to be in. And so uh, 2013, United and Continental, um, the pilots merged their seniority list, got a new contract, and suddenly it wasn't 2009 anymore. It was actually something that you could look at and say, hey, I can I can have a retirement out of this because of course we had lost our pensions, we had lost our stock ownerships. Um, and and so many of those things were were dealt with with the with the um, consolidation of the of the airline industry. So I came back to fly the um, 757, 767, because one of the things that was missing in my uh, work in avionics, in the avionics uh, industry, I didn't have international experience. So I would be asking um, the, the flight techno technology folks at the airlines, hey, how, how do you do this? How do you fly over the water with the, the oceanic track system? I mean, now I do it in my sleep, um, almost literally. So with that, I just didn't have that grasp of how we could use ADSB to make it more efficient flying over the ocean. So that was kind of a big 
uh, check the box for me to, to experience that. And so I flew the 7576, then I got to fly the 747-400. I was one of the final uh, pilots of the 747-400 at United uh, when they retired in November of 2017. So I was really lucky to get to do that. And from there, I upgraded to the 737, uh, flew that right up until the pandemic, and then um, sat for about 14 months wondering what they were going to do with me. And uh, here I am now flying the 787 Dreamliner. I'm a, a first officer based in Los Angeles, uh, getting to fly lots of cool international destinations. This is probably when I get to tell you that my very first flight on the fleet on the 787 was to Tahiti. Uh, so, you know, it, it kind of, kind of brought me, uh, brought me right to the, to one of the best spots that we fly. Uh, just a, a side question about the 787, something I've heard, uh, the, the 787 we have at the museum is number three and it was one of the sail planes, not sail, okay. like the, the around the world tour for sales planes. And one of the things that, yeah. that I've heard about it is that the wings um, use algorithms to detect wind coming up to make like micro adjustments to, is it true? Does That's it work? exactly right. It, it is absolutely true. Um, it, it is really, um, it's really it kind of bounces. It, it, it's almost like a bouncing, uh, it, it, the turbulence gets muffled. I think that's probably the the best description. It's very different. I actually just flew on a 747-8 last week, and I was sitting over the wing, and that that's just such a stable airplane, uh, but it's a totally different dynamic of how it's stable. Uh, it, I think it's just because of the way the structure of that aircraft is, whereas now we're using these flight control computers to sort of muffle the the turbulence it's that's yeah it's i've never flown a 787 and i'm just so curious about it oh um the the humidity level and the the altitude you're only at about four thousand feet pressure altitude so it's really comfortable after a 14-hour flight <laughs> yeah you you would know yes um so in uh, for another side question so have you ever then taxied down a runway at o'hare or taxi down a, a taxiway at o'hare that you helped create oh absolutely um that's tax so cool taxiway echo is uh victor used to be delta um and that was the that was the we called it roller coaster road because the cargo planes used to just rip it up um it was the cargo taxiway way back in the day and now i believe it's victor uh, but the whole north side where the holding pad is the they call it hangar alley that whole area i actually learned nighttime operations air operations i learned nighttime air operations from a car from our car our company car um, almost kind of the same height of as you would learn in a small airplane um, so picture being in a piper but learning nighttime operations at o'hare and i the the mechanics would, would come out of the hangar and they had pretty much had free reign when they would bring the planes back to the terminals from from all the hangars and so you had to be really diligent when you were driving around at three in the morning and, and an md-80 might sneak up on you uh with the with the uh tech ops folks taxing at 50 knots it was pretty it was pretty wild uh but i yeah i learned i learned nighttime operations like how to see at an airport 
from that that construction job amazingly enough is it normal for pilots to have because you said you've you've done work actually out on the ramp you've been gate agent you've done baggage like is it normal for pilots to experience all those different levels i think many of my coworkers would say that i've had a very strange career <laughs> um i i don't I, I i would say a lot have worked the ramp and done other jobs maybe flight attendant uh but just the just this sort of huge swath of the industry it, 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 a lot of the, especially on the airline side timing is such a huge thing um so i i think just based on my timing and what what happened in the industry uh especially post 9 11 it's just what happened and um i'm so grateful that i got to see uh, all these different aspects of the operation. So when I became a, a captain at United, I, I, I knew what the, the gate agent job was. I understood how the ramp interacts with the flight deck. Um, and so, and then on top of that, I've worked on, on airside stuff. I know I understand the operation because I've, I've been on the other side. And so I think it just kind of gives a bigger, um, a bigger picture of the of our aviation system and it helps me to be a total av geek too. <laughs> certainly can't hurt on the empathy front that's for sure yes so in all this at one point did you start to understand your identity as a gay person well i i think i i knew i knew i was different when i was a little kid and so kind of growing up i would i would suppress that part of me and i always talked about that i i sort of had two identities one was my aviation side and then one was my 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 sexual identity and i think they they were never going to come together uh i did an internship for united when i was in college at western michigan and and i so i worked in the miami flight office when united had a hub in miami and no one there was ever going to know that I was gay. I never felt like, let's see, this was in 1996 I did the internship. There was no way I was going to ever tell anyone and, and share that part of me. So there was always this sort of um, two-sided uh, coin for, for me in aviation uh, where I didn't feel like I could be myself. And that started to change when I got hired at Continental Express and I happened to meet some other gay pilots. And so go to 1998, 1999, when I'm this new person in, in the airline world, at least flying, I'd been in the airlines, I'd been working on the ramp, I'd been doing these other jobs, but pilots were always on this giant pillar for me. They, they, they were larger than life. It was what I always wanted to do and, and who I wanted to be. But I never felt like I could also be gay at the same time. And, and so I just sort of compartmentalized those things. Not very healthy, right? I don't think, but that's just how it was, at least back then. And so 1999, I, I'm, I get introduced to some people I, at Continental Express who were an NGPA, the National Gay Pilots Association. And I'd always seen their ads, oh, gay pilot, you know, call such and such. And, 
and they were they were in the flying magazine flight training um i know they were banned from some of those at some points um some organizations decided to stop all advertising to prevent the ngpa from from putting ads in and so it was the message was clear i wasn't welcome if i were a gay person at least back then and and then all of a sudden um all of a sudden i'm i'm getting i feel like i'm combining my social and my identity with my career through ngpa and that was the first time i felt whole i felt like a normal person because i could just be myself and be that av geek at the same time that was a huge huge metamorphosis for me and so i'll always have a special place for ngpa in my heart because suddenly i didn't have to hide i could love aviation and love airplanes and and obviously this is a podcast but you could see airplanes in the, in the background as we're talking um i could i could i could look up at airplanes flying over from o'hare and also be a gay person so let's talk a little bit more then about the ngpa the national gay pilots association when you joined was there still you, you kind of hinted at this but was there a stigma around the organization within the wider aviation community yeah i, I joined in uh, officially i think i joined in 99 uh before i went to united i, I started at united in 2000 um yeah there absolutely was a stigma I, I I was very particular in who at Continental Express knew, but we were also a really young group at Continental Express back then. And so it was it was a different generation. It was it was my generation. And so we it was kind of as as Will and Grace was was um opening up the world. Ellen DeGeneres' show had kind of opened up the world. So I think we were starting to feel more comfortable with each other. But at the same time, oh, I, I was definitely not out, uh, so to speak, at COEX. Um, I made the decision at United because I had, I had so many friends at United growing up in Chicago, having been a, a CSR, a customer service rep, having been a, a ramp a ramp person. Um, I made the conscious decision when I started as a pilot at United because I know how painful it was to have had that internship and not, not allowed the people I worked with in Miami to know my entire self. Um, I made the decision that I wasn't going to necessarily be out at work, but I also wasn't going to hide. So if someone, if I had other United pilots who I had a social life outside of, of O'Hare, for example, I wasn't going to hide who I was. And I have friends who did. Uh, they, they hid who they were even outside hanging out with other people. So, yes, there was definitely a stigma uh, being a member of NGPA back, back in 99, 2000. And while... In societally, the stigma has decreased. NGPA still has pretty strict rules about how you talk about who's a member, even today. Less about stigma and just more about protection of your membership. Yeah, we we would have we would have events, um, our flagship events in in Provincetown and in Palm Springs. And I remember um, 
I remember back back at, at the beginning, we would be asked, oh, are you okay with your picture being taken? Things like that. And I, I know now if, if someone decides they don't want to have have that um, that side of them shown, people are very respectful of of that decision. But generally speaking, I, I wouldn't say it's like it was 23 years ago. Uh, but I do remember absolutely. If you didn't want, if you didn't want people to know, you made sure you were not in a photo. Mm-hmm. And that seems to get harder to do. Just the more easy it is to take pictures. I've been in that situation in, in the past few years at conferences and stuff where I haven't wanted my picture taken um, uh, for for you know, previous employers and stuff like that, and it's it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> it does because then you're worried about that instead of contributing. And, and you know, this is something we talk about with with aviation safety and diversity, equity, inclusion um, activities is is when we when someone's worried about their identity being being um, sort of promoted out there. And I've, I've actually had this happen at United uh, where someone outed me. And I'll tell you what. It it is really you you stop thinking about flying safely. You're thinking about everything but. And that's that's completely the opposite every of everything we learn when we're learning to fly. We learned to bear it all, put it out there, put it on the and 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 communicate with your crew members, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what's going to have the safest operation. But the moment someone is is having to compartmentalize and be try to pretend to be somebody else, well, now they're they're we, we call them brain BBs, right? In flight training, you're, you're using brain BBs not for flying, but for you know trying to hide your identity from someone. Are you willing to share more of the context of that story? Absolutely. Um, I was a new first officer on the seven twenty seven. Uh, I'd actually. About what year was this? Uh, this was 2001. Okay. Um, and I remember it like it was yesterday because the, I told you that I had I had made the decision that if people knew me outside of work and outside of the flight deck, I was not going to hide who I was. I I I had gotten my dream job. This was my dream career job. Even on probation, we we do one year of probation uh, at typically at the airlines, uh, and and that even during that time I made that decision because I felt like, okay, at this point I've gotten, I've gotten to where I want, I've always wanted to, to achieve. And, and so I was still on probation and this particular captain, a 727 captain who shall rename, remain unnamed. um, He was supposed to do a, a big, Europe trip with with some of my new hire classmates. And so they knew each other. I didn't know him, but he was friends of friends. And I'm in flight operations and at O'Hare, which at the time was larger than most airlines in the world. We had that many pilots. It was it was crazy busy. And he sees me and he sees one of our mutual friends. And I I walk out, you know, I'm very friendly because I think I'm going to be hanging out with him in Europe in a few months and, and I'm friendly anyway, so that it's just my nature. So, so I leave and I find out from this other 727 captain, uh, this is kind of how the conversation goes. He says, 
hey, you, you, you know he knows about you, right? I said, what knows about me what? Oh, he knows that you're gay. Oh my, and, and of course I had not outed myself to him. What this guy was in the hallway ranting about how I was gay and used some not so great lang language. Um, and what he didn't know was that this person who he knew from New Hire, so they had started at United together. What he didn't know was that this person was also gay. So he's telling his supposed friend uh, how horrible it is that I'm a gay pilot. So I find this out. Fa fast forward uh, a couple months, and at two in the morning, I get a call from the crew desk, crew schedulers, that I because I'm on call, I'm on reserve. I get a call that I'm going to have to show up at the airport at five a.m. So within three hours, and I'm flying a three-day trip with this captain with the one who has called me a faggot. And I, I'm, I'm, of course, traumatized at this point. I don't get any more sleep. I'm, I'm, I'm done. And I get to operations at five in the morning. Of course, we know each other. That's the other piece of this. It's not like we had never met, but I know that this story had happened. And so I let him get into my head. And we get into operations and he's clearly not thrilled that he has to fly with me. Um, and he's on reserve. He's on call as well. He wouldn't even shake my hand in operations. That's very unusual when you're meeting somebody, especially somebody, you know. And so I in that con in that in that moment, I made the absolute decision that I had to fly better than I'd ever flown before. And guess what? And I was a brand new pilot on this airplane. In fact, the 727 was the very first airplane I ever learned how to fly an autopilot. We didn't have an autopilot before that. And so here I am flying this jet with 141 passengers and, and I've got to be better than I've ever been because this guy thinks what he thinks about me. And that's what I did. The next three days, I, I, I would, had to fly perfectly, better than perfectly. And by the third day, he was just nothing but friendly, hand on my shoulder, and you know, oh yeah, like we were old buddies because I I had proved him wrong that I knew how to fly an airplane. And that story for me, that experience, while I am a Caucasian male, um, and I don't necessarily wear my gayness on my sleeve, and so. That's when I understood just a moment, just a bit of what it must be like for my female pilot friends, uh, for my other minority pilot friends who have to show up to work and be treated like this guy treated me uh, and have to fly better than they've ever flown before. And, and it, it doesn't happen often, um, but I know what that feels like. And it, it, it's 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 not a positive experience because again, I'm more worried about how is this person going to take me rather than me flying a, a, a safe jet. Well, thanks for sharing that story, Greg. Shifting gears to like today, part of NGPA's goal is to create a world where that situation doesn't happen in the industry. So how has the organization kind of changed and evolved. Well, I want to go, go back to the roots of it then. What do you know sure. about the earliest days of the NGPA? I and mean, this was far before your time. Well, 
I, I will upset some folks in NGPA because I was in high school when <laughs> when uh, when they formed. Uh, it was formed in 1990 as a social club, um, and then of course became an official entity in 1994. Uh, their first event, uh, actually. July, Question: So while it was a yeah. social club, what did it did it go under a, a different name? Or anything like that. Uh, it, it was, I think it was the GPA. It was the Gay Pilots Association. Okay, was the was the original. And but it wasn't, it wasn't like super hit. Like here in Seattle, I came to learn in conversation with the. We are we are not a Boeing museum, but we're surrounded by Boeing. And I was chatting with um, some folks at Boeing who are part of a LGBT affinity group, and they said that back in the day, their group existed as the Bonsai Tree Club. <laughs> Wow. Wow. As a way of kind of hiding in plain sight. Yeah, it was under it was under the radar. Um, uh, no pun intended, but pun intended. It was under the radar by basically creating um, creating this event in in Provincetown, Massachusetts, and everybody self-identified with a specific T-shirt. I mean, so it, it was it, it wasn't out there for sure. Um, and the the articles of incorporation uh, went as a social organization were in 1994 um not long after that uh, the the 501c3 was set up for the education fund and i don't i don't unfortunately have that that exact time um timeline but for me because i it took a scholarship for me to get to pursue my dream so for me besides NGPA being this safe space for me to be my whole self with aviation and socially and, and meeting people, the scholarship, the education fund side of things is really what pushes NGPA to what it is today. Um, and so I, I joined in 99 and then I joined the board of the of the education fund in 2009, so 10 years later. But I saw folks who got scholarships. Um, in fact, our 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 endowed scholarship is named after David Charlevoix, who was the first officer uh, of the plane that hit the Pentagon, the American Airlines plane. So uh, he he we were supposed to get together uh, in Provincetown right right after that. And so uh, this, the education fund, I think that piece of this is really what is it's the glue because it has destigmatized, if you will, uh, why we're, we're, we're aviation people. We love aviation and we want to give people the opportunity to, to do what we, we get to do. Whether someone goes in through the military or through a merit scholarship program, uh, we're all trying to get to this aviation mecca, if you will. And um, that education fund has has been a big piece because it was built internally. It was built by our members. Um, that there were lots of arguments over the years. When do we start giving out an endowed scholarship? Because people in members, it was their money. It wasn't money coming from corporations and, and unknown donors. It was coming from us. And so I remember when we finally did this, this named endowment of, of how contentious and, and fulfilling it really was. And so we've had some pretty amazing, amazing people 
um, uh, get these scholarships and go on into industry. And I think that that's been probably a big, a big piece of, Hey, we're here, we're here to stay. We're here to help the industry. And, um, it's, it's okay to put NGPA scholarship recipient on your resume. Very different world from 1990 when it was formed. Huge. And yeah. even, even my own employer, um, you know, I, I, I've done all these jobs and it's always been seen, um, or it's been seen for a long time as being a fairly progressive airline uh, when it came to LGBTQ rights. And I remember when United showed up at our Palm Springs event, our industry uh, day, and brought all these pilots in their uniforms to do interviews uh, at our industry day. And I was standing at the NGPA booth with one of my triple seven captain United triple seven captain friends who I met when I first started in the, in the organization and the two of us, I think this was, I want to say this was February of, of 2015. And we sort of looked at each other and went, Oh my gosh, do, did we ever, ever expect to see our airline bring flight operations, uh, hiring pilot hiring to our event? That would I couldn't even have imagined that 15 years prior to that when, when I started or when I, and when I interviewed. So huge, huge transition for, in that time. Um, and, you know, pretty fulfilling to see that the industry said, hey, we've got a huge pool, a talent pool here, whether it's Women in Aviation or OBAP or Latino Pilots Association, NGPA. We have a, ta- a talent pool that we're not addressing and we need to, to bring them into, um, in, into the mix and make sure everyone feels welcome. Really interesting perspective you shared a little earlier about how it, it also becomes a flight safety question. If you're not, if, and that's, that's true right overall, like HR departments, like one of the reasons to make a company feel welcoming is so that people feel welcomed and perform well. Uh, If I don't perform well, worst that happens is the podcast doesn't go out on time. If you don't perform well, people can die. Yeah. I I mean, we, I think we, we, again, I said that pilots, I I had put them on this pedestal, right. As, As a younger person. And what I know now is we're just regular people who have a lot of responsibility, were highly trained, specialized uh, people. Uh, and at the end of the day, and we're very mission oriented. That's the other piece. And so we want to get the mission done safely. And the moment that you, we, we talk about this in, in, in my company, hey, how are you doing today? Do you have any personal stuff going on? Oh, did you come back from three weeks of vacation? Or do you need to... Do you need to uh, take a little bit of extra time because you've been out of the flight deck for a little bit? But then you throw in this, I'm acting like somebody who I'm not. And I've been there. I've, I was there with, with this particular story I, I shared earlier. When you're worried about walking on eggshells, that you're going to do something wrong because this person doesn't like you. Rather than just showing up and doing the job and following standard operating procedure and, and showing up being treated 
with professional respect to begin with. And I think that's the, that's the big difference is that some folks don't know, many folks don't know in our industry what it's like to show up and not be, and, and not be given the benefit of the doubt. That, that's, that's a feeling that I, as a, as a, a gay male, when somebody, if somebody doesn't like that part of me, it's the primary thing. Um, and I've, you talked about being at, at with Boeing. I actually presented um, for a Boeing uh, pride event. And I talked about this, that at the end of the day, we as an industry, we're a, we're a safety system. And, and if we're, if we're not, addressing parts that are that are going to take away safety and this is definitely one of them um, people not being able to show up to their job at, as their authentic selves that that's not good in the long run for sure and it doesn't matter which seat you're in whether you're a, a, a air traffic controller or first officer or you're you're um, the, the ramp personnel who, who needs to make sure that the cargo doors close properly and there's the question, too, of, of double standards. Um, someone we'll be talking about on a different episode of the podcast that comes out after this is a pilot named Karen Ulane. And uh, she is a transgender pilot. She flew in the 1980s for Northwest, and she was fired after she began undergoing what we today call gender confirmation surgery. And uh, the, the <laughs> she sued. And so we have all these court documents that kind of lay out the reasons the airline said that it was inappropriate for her to be flying. Wow. Um, and then all the reasons when she won, the first version, that the judge said, well, this doesn't work out. And there's there's, there's this amazing one that I, I like to bring up, which is that the airline basically said that her presence would be a distraction ah. to customers. They wouldn't feel comfortable flying with uh, a person who is transgender. Uh, because it's just too in in your face about an identity. And the judge in his findings pointed out that just a few months prior to firing Karen, a a Northwest pilot and his wife, who was a flight attendant, had posed in Playboy magazine and Northwest had nothing to say about that at all. It was perfectly fine for that to happen. Wow. Uh, but for a person to just show up and fly a plane as a transgender person was as, as them not acceptable yeah yeah that it's 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 yeah the double standard is amazing and i i try to be i try we, i try to not be in people's faces about it and just be in an education mindset we, we should always be in a learning mindset in this industry because things are changing and i really i really one of the things we talked about in strategic planning at NGPA over the years is what what does success look look like to you, and the, the success to me for NGPA is to have all of our efforts be to where NGPA doesn't have to exist. And when we talk to some of our our um, our brother and sister organizations out there, it's actually pretty similar. And and we've been on we've been to events in Europe, for example, um, at the uh, eBase in Geneva, um, and we've had people come up to us saying, 
why do you guys, why do you even have an organization like this? Because in their culture, whatever culture this person's coming from, they can't even understand that there'd be an issue, um, that we would need to have some of that solidarity and commiserating of, of what it's like to have to lead this double life. So what is NGPA doing then? I know you have, for example, a thriving scholarship program to help foster the next generation. You've talked about how mentorship has been a big part of your life. What are you doing first to help bring along the next generation of pilots? Well, I'll I'll give some historic background on the scholarship program. There was a time uh, back not too long ago where we couldn't give money away. We, we challenged ourselves to even try to get 30 applicants to give away this money uh, one year. And, and now we're, I think, going to be about a half a million dollars with all of the, all of the funds that we've got between our endowment funds and, and our corporate uh, donors. Uh, but I think the scholarship side of this, bringing people together, with that fellowship, encouraging students at university aviation programs to come out to our our big events so that they can network with folks who are already in the industry. That was something that that I had to sort of do on my own in, in when I was in undergrad. And now I think the universities, uh, the large aviation university programs are doing a really good job of connecting with NGPA and getting their students whether whether they're they're ally members, whether they are um, scholarship recipients, it doesn't matter. Just bringing people together for that fellowship, and because at the end of the day, we all love aviation, and we're all trying to get uh, be successful and, and be safe in the industry. So I think that that's that's where this everything sort of um, stems from that scholarship program of of connecting with the younger generation. And then uh, we've got our inclusion training team where we've gone out and helped um, uh, professional standards groups at different pilots unions. Hey, how do I how do we address uh, what's going on in the flight deck uh, when someone is is not being treated uh, as if they're an equal? How do you handle that? Uh, How can you create a, a more welcoming environment? Uh, things like that, where we're working with industry to uh, to create that safe space. We NGPA has held, I want to say it's been four now. Uh, the pandemic obviously delayed some things, but we've held at least four um, DEI summits uh, for the aviation industry, and the last one was was actually hosted. Uh, at the Airline Pilots Association headquarters in uh, Virginia. Um, and the United States Air Force recruiting team was there. Uh, the FAA was there. Um, you, you had uh, acting administrator Billy Nolan. He spoke to, the, spoke to the, the folks who were attending the summit. So we're really engaged with the industry to um, make sure that that aviation is that welcoming space so people can show up to work and be safe from the get-go. Uh, we're working on um, some, we've, we've, for those folks who are not in, in university programs, maybe, um, maybe they're coming from just the general aviation world, which is where I started. I started in GA, most of us do. Um, creating a program with the Mayo Clinic uh, for 
mental health um, um, assistance and making sure that if if someone needs uh, help, whether it's um, some sort of physical side where they need some advice or getting that that mental health uh, assistance and and trying to break down the stigma um, uh, of getting mental health um, uh, assistance. We're, we're working on that. I know. I know the organization is is really committed to taking care of its members, and again, making the aviation system safer. How has the NGPA also been involved in, like, actual legal action or lobbying or anything to that end on behalf well, of its members? Or yeah, obviously, as a five hundred one c three, we're we're very careful. Uh, we can't be political, uh, but we can certainly advocate. Uh, I know we've been instrumental in how the FAA uh, deals with HIV. Um, members of our organization were at the forefront to make sure that that was no longer a disqualifying uh, um, activity for or, or a status with getting a, an FAA medical, because at one point it was. Um, and that directly was because of NGPA members and leaders. Um, but ad- advocating for uh, transgender rights, um, especially for as it, as it applies to being in the flight deck um, of a commercial airliner, for example, um, standing up when uh, there we, we have members who are in the military and standing up and showing support for our transgender uh, members who are still in the military and making sure that they have um, the opportunities that that anyone would have and, and their transgender status isn't stopping that. So yes, the, the advocacy side is definitely a part of NGPA. Uh, it's really advocacy, um, the, scholarship side and education. Uh, I, we've, we've had amazing speakers over the years. We, we learn from our hangar talk, right? We, 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 we learn from other pilots and other aviation professionals. And one year uh, we had Al Haynes, the captain of United Flight 232 that crashed in Sioux City. I mean, the poster child for dealing for a CRM, crew resources management, how, how to be successful. Uh, that way, and and Al, um, before he passed away, um, was was kind enough to spend a, a day with us, with our organization, and talk about that Sioux City uh, experience and what he learned from it. So, uh, so advocacy, uh, scholarship, and education really are are three pillars for our organization. And you hinted that this a little bit, but your work goes far beyond your name at this point, National Gay Pilots Association. So, so who is NGPA for at this point? Well, NGPA, our tagline being the worldwide LGBTQ organization for aviation, um, we, we've got groups all over the world now. Um, in, in some countries, the national part is, 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 has a negative moniker, so we've, we've shortened it to NGPA. There has been talk uh, internally about potentially changing the name. Um, I know OBAP is, has changed its, it, its, what its initials um, stood for um, as its membership changed. Um, but yeah, we have members all over the world um, who... who really rely on that that camaraderie and um 
and and again want want to show support for the industry and and make it make it better you've talked about the camaraderie uh looking back into your own story how did you when you were first starting out how did you kind of find your people Um, i know you said you weren't out and you know maybe it didn't Maybe you didn't know a lot of gay people who were also pilots, but just did you? And if so, how did y'all find each other? I thought I was the only one, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing how many of us back back then, that's that's what we thought. I thought I was the only gay pilot in the world. Um, yeah, it's a it's a very lonely world when you think you're the only only one. Um, kind of going back, I, I just think hanging around um, with a bunch of young people, in Cleveland, new pilots, new airline pilots, we sort of just found each other. It 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 was like, oh, I'm I'm I, I'm an adult now. I'm out of the house. We're out of college, and I have a real job. It didn't pay very well, but I have a real job. And and we just sort of, it sounds crazy, sort of found each other. And not what what's also interesting is not every gay pilot I knew back then be, was interested in in being ngpa they, they they were not interested in going they that wasn't their thing um some people it was purely social uh for me it was i just want to feel normal i just want to feel welcome and be able to be myself and not talk about having a girlfriend um that it, that, that part of it, that's what was really important to me. And it became an outlet for me. Um, it became an outlet for me to be able to pay it forward, not only on the, on the mentoring side, but, but again, with the scholarship side. Um, but yeah, it, it, we just sort of found each other and, and thank goodness. Your organization is continuing to do that, right? It started out in Provincetown with these meetups and that's still something that happens today. Yeah, every every mid September weekend, uh, we're in P Town. Um, we're every we call it the winter warm up because of winter being colder in Palm Springs in January. We've actually shifted it to February, so it's typically Super Bowl weekend uh, in Palm Springs. Although I think this next year we we got pushed back another week. Um, uh, Sisters of the Skies has their event. Uh, uh, one weekend and so we're going to be a different weekend um but yeah those those meetups are are incredibly important um but they're some of them are pretty big events and so we do have local chapters um all over the country also in the uk uh i don't know where if if we have any local chapters in australia right now uh but the local chapters are another way to connect uh with with fellow ngpa members um and 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 just again get that camaraderie piece. You mentioned earlier, David Charlebois. Did you know him personally? I did. Yeah, we 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 had just met, and I was supposed to um, I was supposed to hang out with him in P Town with some other friends, um, and and uh, un- unfortunately, nine eleven happened. Can you remind people who? Some of our listeners weren't even born yet. Yeah, yeah, David, David, who our endowment is named after, um, flew for American Airlines, and he was 757 first officer, and he was uh, um, he was on the flight that 
that was hijacked and um, and then was used as a missile in the uh, in the Pentagon on 9/11. And so I, I you know I guess the talking about that it's 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 real it's sobering for me because 9/11 seems like it was yesterday. It changed everything, um, everything in my world uh, overnight. And, um, here, here, here we were in 2001, not even feeling like we, we could be out of the closet and, and be our authentic selves every day at work. And one of the, one of the, uh, eight pilots who lost their lives working on 9-11 was one of our members. I mean, that's some pretty, that, that, that's, that's close to home. But it shows we're pilots first, right? We're 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 people first. We're the the whatever our our uh, gender identification, sexual orientation, that that is that's secondary to those aspects. You do have a lot of models here. I see a a a, a poster. There we go. Of a 314 Clipper, which I have not flown that, uh, Sean. Uh, well, I didn't think you were that old. <laughs> That's kind of my personal unicorn plane of like, if, if people ask us, you know, what would you add to the museum? And that's one that comes to my mind personally, just because it's such a, I mean, it's been so romanticized in that time too is, I mean, I'll be perfectly honest. It's, it's a very romantic notion of this plane, this big honking plane that was built here in Seattle, right? Yes. In, in the Red Barn. I mean, the, the water that flows by the museum is the same river where they built those and it's just uh, such an icon. And, and, and I believe they flew them to Shannon, didn't they? I think they flew them to Shannon, Ireland. And one, some of my first flights when I came back from uh, furlough, uh, when I flew the 7576 at United were to Shannon. And so well, the first time I flew to Shannon, the captain was actually describing to me that this is where the 314s would fly in, that Pan Am would fly them in here. And this was the big, big stopping point. Yeah, and I, you're right. And I believe uh, they're the only, there's a museum there. There are no surviving 314s, but they have a, a model that you can go in. I don't know if it's full scale or not, but uh, yeah, somewhere in Ireland, it might be Shannon. I'm sure I'll get an email from somebody that tells me exactly where it is. <laughs> If you ever get the chance to go to the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago, uh, the 727-100 that's there um, in the center of the of the museum, it's actually named, it's a United airplane. They landed it at Meg's Field, put it on a barge, and brought it down, down Lake Michigan, uh, down to where they could put it in the museum. And of course, that was the site of the World's Fair, uh, in 1893, that plane is named in honor of one of my mentors, Bill Norwood. And so it's really cool. Uh, the Purdue University folks were the ones who, who pulled all the hydraulics out and made it all pneumatics. So the gear come down, the flaps and slats come down. Um, but there's a great exhibit for Bill and, um, and there is his name on the side of, of, of the nose of the jet. And so that to me just brings me joy because I fly for United. My first jet was the 727. And if it weren't for Bill, uh, I might not be 
where I am today, flying flying the Dreamliner. We started with Bill, and we've come back around to Bill. I feel like that's a great spot to wrap up. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to make sure uh, we talk about? I'm excited for the the future of our NGPA members. I think that we have a lot of um, Zillennials and Gen Zers who are have, have sort of taken the torch. Uh, folks who are recipients of our scholarships and really pushing forward to create that better, safer aviation system and 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 pushing that. It's okay to be who you are, and uh, we're here regardless. So um, we're, we're going to fly with you, and we're going to fly your family safely, and and we're going to continue to to make sure that we're giving scholarships out to people who want to be successful in this industry, and um, make sure we've got a pipeline. And if people want to learn more about your work, where can they go? NGPA.org. Uh, that will list any of the scholarship uh, uh, opportunities that are out there along with our events and ways to get involved. And do you, is there an age maximum on your scholarship opportunities? Like, do you have to be a high schooler or can? Uh, there are various uh, requirements um, that we have so many different scholarships uh, from private pilot to tech ops scholarships. So each each one uh, has has its own requirements, but they're, they're, there's plenty of opportunity for everyone. Right. Well, Greg Sumner, thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely, Sean, thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning into this episode of The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. The podcast is only possible thanks to our donors. You and your support make this show happen. So thank you. You can learn more about the National Gay Pilots Association, including info about their scholarships on their website. And I'll leave links to that in our show notes at museumofflight.org podcast. This season of the podcast, we're leaving space for our listeners to share their own story. If something you heard today sparked a thought in you, or if something in Greg's story resonated with you in some way, or if you're an LGBTQ person in aerospace who just wants to share an experience, you can contact us at podcast at museumofflight.org. If we get enough submissions, at the end of this run of episodes, we'll share some of your stories, of course, with your permission. If you like what you heard today, please make sure to subscribe and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you downloaded us from. This episode was produced by Kevin Wright. Until next time, this is your host, Sean Mobley, saying to everyone out there on that good earth, see you out there, folks. <laughs>